Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Ashoka Modi. He is an Indian-born economist and a visiting professor in international economic policy and lecturer in public and international affairs at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. Formerly, he worked at the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. His new book is titled, India is Broken, A People Betrayed, Independence to Today. I'm joined by 21 of my Harvard classmates. Hi, Bill Collins, Harvard 63, like the others on here. 20 years in the Navy, driving ships around the ocean and doing nuclear power. And... Uh, Westinghouse Electric for a while and Savannah Riverside for a while, which brought me to Aiken, South Carolina, where I now live with my wife. My three kids are all elsewhere. Ron Blau from uh, New Jersey, but not a Princeton graduate, class 63, been in TV and video basically all my life, uh, now doing a bunch of things for the climate with some of the people who are assembled here, too. Okay, Richard Rothstein. Hi. Well, I um, I've been writing for the last ten years about racial segregation. Um, I've got a new book coming out uh, about uh, what people can do about it, but I can't resist uh, telling uh, Mr. Collins there that um, back in the day when I was a union organizer, I spent uh, several months in Allendale organizing a textile mill. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably be long before you got to Aiken. Yeah. When I got to Aiken, the textile industry was yeah. still still alive, but it's now dead. Yeah, I know. The, the, all the plants I organized are gone. Yeah. 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 Uh, Nick. Uh, Nick Bancroft, Medfield, Mass., outside of Boston, uh, class of 63 with these guys, uh, then Harvard Business School, and then um, abruptly into India for two years, 66 through 68. And... Uh, I think your book uh, is um, not only very readable, but a blockbuster. I think it's terrific. Um, it took me back uh, 60 years as if it were about 60 minutes ago. Uh, but uh, all I can say is, Adzmi Toda Marathi Bolata. Uh, just uh, 66 to 68 were very pivotal years. Uh, you were there at the right time. I, we, I hope we get to talk about it. Great. Okay. Jerry. Good morning. Uh, Jerry Secundi, Pasadena, California. Um, lawyer after uh, Harvard. Uh, then I also went into the Peace Corps, but uh, in Peru and South America. Then worked for the federal government, state government, oil companies, uh, nonprofits, et cetera. And just in, enjoying life right now. Okay, John Woodford. Hi, John Woodford, 63, here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I've been, where I was writing and editing for a number of years. And uh, I did have a chance to meet the great Indian journalist, uh, Peter Sainath, in um, Afghanistan in the 80s. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, Ann. Hi, I'm Ann Huberman from Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm <laughs> a retired academic librarian and now a climate activist. And I'm a I'm just a little curious to know whether you have had any interactions with our classmate Gurcharan Das, uh, <laughs> who does a lot of writing on on uh, 
the state of Indian affairs. <laughs> yes, I, I have actually had uh, contact with uh, interaction with Gurjaran Das. I don't think he's going to like uh, me or my book very much at this point. But yes, when we met, it was very friendly. <laughs> okay, Ezra. Um, class of 63 also, Ezra Griffith. And I am uh, an emeritus professor from the Yale School of Medicine. My specialty is psychiatry. Peter Grilly. Uh, yes, hello everybody. Um, my name is Peter Grilly. I was cl originally class of 63, as most of the people here are, but I took time off and graduated in 65. And I now live in Massachusetts in the town of Harvard. Um, I'm basically a Japan specialist. I grew up in Japan and all my life's work has been involved with, with Japan principally. But I did have the opportunity to go twice to India for several weeks each time. First in 1961 and then again most recently in 2016. I was able to see the tremendous differences between uh, during that 50-year period. We also had the great good fortune to become friends with uh, Amartya Sen. Wow. I've had the chance to speak with him a little bit, not nearly as much as I'd like, about India and the current state of Indian affairs. So I'm very much looking forward to your talk today. Okay. Hey, David Lillivelle. Hi, I'm David Lillivelle, the class of 63. Uh, after I graduated, I went to India, to what was then called Madras, and uh, uh, taught English on a Fulbright program, and then returned to the University of Chicago, where I did a PhD in Indian history. And uh, since that time, I've written uh, mostly on uh, uh, Indian Muslims and North Indian Muslims, uh, Urdu and uh, Hindi language uh, controversies and other such matters. So I've uh, been involved uh, with India since 1963. Much of, uh, 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 I've only read, uh, unfortunately, up to uh, Shastri's death in, the, in, the, in your book, uh, but I uh, very much uh, remember much of what you wrote and have read a great deal about it and uh, have some disagreements, but uh, I think we're basically in the same place uh, on, on some of these issues. Hey, Jeff. Uh, hi, I'm Jeff Fox. I live in Southern Spain, also class of 63. Um, I spent many years working as a sociologist specializing in Latin America. Uh, I was in India Oh, it must have been 50 years ago, uh, starting out uh, in Bangalore and then visiting other places uh, in Bangalore, um, working with uh, a group of, they call themselves the Dalit Panthers. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm keen, I'm keenly, I'm still keenly interested in India and I've kept up with it and I've, I have Indian friends, so I'm very, I'm very interested in what you have to say. Okay, thank you. Liz. Hi, um, I'm Liz Mori. I'm also class of 63. And um, <clears throat> uh, I had no contact with India until January, uh, where I went for three weeks with my cousin, 
And uh, so I spent three weeks, uh, February, January, February of 2023 in India. And uh, of course, for me, it was just a totally wonderful, very, very enlightening experience. Um, I am a uh, almost completely retired clinical psychologist, and I live right outside of DC in Tacoma Park. Okay. Okay, Marcy. Um, <clears throat> I run uh, a nonprofit in New York City that waged a series of resource allocation battles and won a big one, the Westway River Development versus Mass Transit fight. Now I'm looking for the right archivist to categorize our vast and valuable treasure trove of documents and make them more accessible and user-friendly, especially for authors like you who are writing alternative accounts of the histories that were written by the big boys. Have you thought of Princeton University archives? Very good set of archives. Mm -hmm. Okay, David McGregor. Hi, David McGregor. Um, live in Queens, worked in city government, and never have had the chance to visit India, but anybody interested in city government has to be fascinated with, uh, with India. So I'm looking forward to this very much. Okay, Spencer. Yes, Spencer, uh, I was uh, somehow imbued with the spirit of India when I was three, four, and five years old. I'm not kidding. Uh, uh, the music still uh, sings in my soul as I listen to it on records uh, that my mother had. Uh, and I always wondered about it. I was, uh, I thought I was Mowgli for a while. <laughs> and he used to live with my uh, dog under the piano in the wolf pack. But uh, in uh, growing up, I was uh, I've had uh, real uh, uh, beautiful experiences with the Indian diaspora diaspora in uh, Tanzania, which was now Tanzania. Um, hi, I'm uh, Doug Shapiro, living in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I never managed to make it to the continent of India, but I did spend three uh, months, uh, quite some years ago, studying the behavior of coral reef reef fishes uh, in uh, the center of the Indian Ocean. Okay. Uh, David Othmer. Um, I, also class of 63, <clears throat> turns out that just after we graduated, I went to India and lived there for three months, largely with uh, traveling by myself and then about half the time, and then half the time in Delhi with a tutor, uh, 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 economics tutor named Steve Marglin, who some of you may yeah, remember. I know him. Uh, and and so I, I got a very good feeling for the for the country at that time, but it's been a very long time ago, so I'm not I'm not <laughs> at all up to date on on India. I did grow up in South America, and my career has been in public broadcasting. Okay, Peter. Peter Lesboy. Hi, I'm, I'm uh, a writer and editor in New Hampshire. And the, uh, the big textbook companies in this country are so hooked up with the, uh, the compositors in New Delhi. I do business with India every day, just about. Huh. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Uh, and finally, Kenneth, Ken. 
Uh, hi, Ken Manister uh, in uh, Northern California. Uh, and uh, I'm just say hi to everybody. I, I, I don't have uh, much relevant background to add. <laughs> okay. And Professor, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. It's a very distinguished audience. I'm delighted to be talking to all you folks. So uh, I, I'm born and uh, brought up in India. I did college in India. I uh, went to something called the IIT, which has become a bit of a brand name in this country. Uh, my wife and I uh, both went there. Uh, I My first degree was in electronics engineering, but I found that I really wanted to study economics and economic development in particular. Uh, moved quickly after that uh, to an institute in Trivandrum, which is in the southwest of, of India and the state of Kerala. Came to the United States in 83. So it's now, what, 40 years. Uh, worked at the World Bank IMF. Uh, and took early retirement from both those places and have been at uh, Princeton University's School of Public Policy. They call it now School of Public and International Affairs. It used to be called the Woodrow Wilson School. And uh, I've been here uh, 11 years, so I'm just finishing 11 years. I did an earlier book on Europe uh, called Euro Tragedy. That was about the single currency euro. Uh, my professional experience at the IMF was on Europe, but uh, my heart and my passion have always been in India. And I wanted to write a book on India to tell a story about India. Uh, as uh, Kent noted in his an email to me, he was struck by a phrase in the preface which said, this book is a history to inform the present. Mm. I felt that just writing on contemporary India was unsatisfactory because so much of what we see today is a product of the past. And therefore to understand where India stands today, and where it's going, we must understand how this historical process is evolving. So I call the book, India is Broken. Very dramatic title, uh, but uh, I call it for three reasons. One is a continuous failure in the, through the 75 years since independence to create good jobs. And I believe we have reached a point where the backlog of jobs is already large, backlog of job seekers is already large. And every year, seven to nine million new people come onto the job market, young people who want jobs. And so over the next decade, in my, by my estimate, India will need to create 200 million jobs to fully employ its working age population. And this comes against a background where in the last 10 years, there has been virtually no job creation. 
just one one technical point I should clarify at this point that when we talk about the employment channel challenge in India, it is improper, incorrect to use a statistic that's used in advanced economies called the unemployment rate. The, in, in the Indian context, very few people can afford to be unemployed. And so they typically enter into what are called work sharing arrangements. So family farm, small business, they, they, they share the work. And they therefore have a lot of downtime during the course of the day, the week, the season. And the extent of this underemployment is so significant that if you took away something of the order of 15, 16% of the workforce from the work that they ostensibly do, you would see no decline in output in economic activity. That's the employment challenge, that you have to create jobs, not just for those who call themselves unemployed, but for those who are vastly underemployed. And even those who, are, do, who do have jobs, they toil long and arduous hours, often at pitiful wages, with no uh, social security benefit. Just one statistic that I might give you at this point is that through the 75 years since independence, only about 10% of the Indian workforce has received a regular monthly or weekly salary with at least one social security benefit. So that's, that's the employment challenge. And I, I believe that we have reached a point where the challenge has now become so large that it's not clear to me how India is going to solve it. Mm -hmm. Below the challenge of jobs is that of what I call public goods. For those of you who are economists or have, you know, you're all very uh, distinguished scholars in one way or another, the term public goods is used in various ways. I use it for education, health, livable cities, the judicial system, clean air and clean water. And in all of these dimensions, India has either fared poorly or in fact, things have become worse. So in education, for example, only sometime in the 90s did India achieve full 100% primary enrollment a primary school enrollment. Uh, but since then, despite that enrollment, the quality of education has been very poor. Uh, fifth grade kid cannot do division. The reading comprehension is very poor. And so what happens is that because the preparation in primary school is so weak, as they go up the school ladder, they fall further behind and they're never able to catch up. And 
something of the order of the last number I see, something of the order of 30% of kids drop out of school in high school. And those who do go, do go on to college go into various so-called garbage colleges, which produce degree, which gives them certification rather than education. And so while you see CEOs of Indian origin in the Silicon Valley, and you see people on uh, US television of Indian origin who are commentators on COVID and extremely brilliant uh, doctors and scientists, what you're seeing is a sliver behind which lies a vast, poorly educated nation. Healthcare is poor, but the two, the two areas that I just want to highlight now, we come back to some of this, I'm sure, uh, the judicial system and the environment. The judicial system is, is broken, literally broken in many dimensions, but just one statistic I will give you is that there's a prison, the prison population is about 600,000 prisoners. By American standards, that's not a very large fraction uh, of the uh, uh, of incarcerated people. But of that 600,000, three quarters, three quarters of that number uh, are what in India we call under trials, meaning that they are in prison awaiting a trial. And often the period of awaiting the trial is so long that it exceeds the sentence that they might have received if they had been tried and convicted of the crime they were alleged to have committed. And while in prison, therefore, custodial torture is not uncommon to extract so-called confessions. And as a consequence, the, the police exercise a very sort of draconian uh, influence on society. So it's not as though the police comes and intimidates you every day, but there's sort of like a fear hanging over society that if I'm on the wrong side of the law, I get trapped into a system from which it's impossible to get out. And then, of course, the environment, you've all heard about air pollution in India, but to me, what is even more serious is that virtually every river in India is dying. Is dying because of a fluid discharge of unplanned and chaotic urbanization, construction debris being put in, uh, thrown into rivers, uh, groundwater exploitation on the banks of rivers for very intensive agriculture, uh, so that the natural flow of rivers has been disrupted for a wide variety of reasons. As a consequence, rivers are both, oddly enough, bereft of water, and what water there is tends to be polluted. So the lived reality of people, when you combine the jobs and the public goods, is weak. And so the question that I was faced with when I started writing the book is why? Why is this the case? And this is the third failure, the third aspect, which in some sense is causes me the greatest pessimism. And that is what I call the erosion of social norms and public accountability. 
there has been a gradual, it started in the Nehruvian period. And Mrs. Gandhi, Indira Gandhi, 66 to 68, uh, even well before her emergency, legitimized a style of governing where it became okay to, to be corrupt as a, as a, an, a senior politician. The, the erosion of social norms and public accountability is important because it leads to what I call a bad equilibrium by which I mean that if sufficient number of people behave according to norms that disregard the rule of law, then it is in everyone's incentive to do the same. Right. So the, 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 I sometimes uh, use an adaptation of the biblical court, uh, which says, do unto others before they do unto you. So it is it is in your interest to cheat someone because you think if you do not do it, they will cheat you. And the same thing happens in public accountability. Uh, when there is public unaccountability, when there's public unaccountability, it is not in the politician's interest to impose accountability on themselves. So we have all the fine laws. For example, India's environmental laws are some of the best in the world, but everyone disregards them with, with a complete non-challenge as though, you know, why would, why would anyone take them seriously? So it is the erosion of social norms and accountability that I believe is the part of the problem and the source of the pessimism, which, leads me to conclude that the lived reality of people in terms of jobs and public goods will get incrementally better potentially, but not on any sustained basis, not in a way that is commensurate with the needs of the people. One last comment I'll make, if I, if you don't mind, uh, is that this is all the book. I started writing the book about four years ago, and you never know when the book comes out and what what's happening in the world at at a time when a sort of economic history of this kind comes out. But this is a moment in at which there is a certain giddiness about India. There are lots of newspapers and commentators who say, this is India's moment. This is in, going to be India's decade. In fact, uh, some people say this is going to be India's century. And to, to put it simply, that is a narrative generated by a government that has a self-interest in projecting itself a, an elite Indian, so India's population is about 1.4 billion. There is something of the order of 70 million people who live nearly almost first world lives. And for, for them, most, most, of, most of the time life is good. They live very well. 
And for them, there is a sense that, yeah, we are fine. And there is also then a Western elite and Western journalists who swoop into India, meet the Indian billionaires, see their lavish lifestyles, go on curated tours of India, and they come back and say, yeah, India is doing great. And they don't see the real India, which is part of the frustration which originally led me to start embark on this project. But it comes out at a moment when that rhetoric has blown into a kind of giddiness. So I just want to flag this because those of you who have been reading about India in the press will feel it, find it incongruous that here's this guy who's saying India is broken. I'm reading that India is doing so well. So that's that's the that's the source of the divergence. Let me stop here, pause here, and let you. Uh, uh, questions? Yes. <laughs> what you must have some idea, some proposal as to uh, what to do in front of this disregard of the law and uh, this notion that do unto others before they do unto you. Um, what can, how, how does one combat that, uh, that idea? Uh, you're going right to the very end of my book. I, I, my, my, my main purpose was to tell the story of how we come here. But let me, since you've brought it up, let me, let me give you an answer. Uh, and maybe we can discuss this at greater length. There is a great temptation. Let me say there's a great temptation for a solution that often, especially the Indian elite, are uh, often in favor of. They believe that the system has become so chaotic. So even, even when they do not recognize the sort of extent of the, the uh, uh, problems as I have portrayed them, there is a tendency to say, well, democracy is not good for India. Democracy is going to only make things worse. We need an authoritarian government. This, this is a notion that goes back a very long time in post-independence India. Uh, certainly, Mrs. Gandhi tried that. Uh, I believe that the current government um, is better described as an electoral autocracy uh, in the in the language of a Swedish think tank, which categorizes countries uh, according to the nature of their regime, uh, and I have always been extremely suspicious of the idea that some kind of autocratic rule is good. There are half a dozen East Asian countries that have done well under autocratic rule, but generally autocracies make things infinitely worse. We have the Idi Amin's and the Mobutu's. So I, I, I come out very much at the very end of my book in favor of a vision of democracy that we need more democracy, not less. And by more democracy, I have this sort of notion of going back and learning lessons from the description of the United States 
uh, as portrayed by Alexei de Tocqueville when he talked about community-led uh, democracy. So my, my, my claim is that what we need to do is to create a stronger bond between those who are governed and those who govern in closer proximity in community and lar somewhat larger systems such that there is a reestablishment of a of a uh, a sense that norms matter a certain morality in public life is not quaint and romantic that and the creation of new norms then becomes the basis for a functioning democracy that hopefully then spreads across communities in India and eventually percolates up. That's sort of a, a sketch of what I what I have presented at the end of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, David Lelevel. Well, there's much to say, uh, and uh, I very much appreciate what you've uh, written about. Uh, uh, I, I tend to think that you blame Nehru uh, perhaps uh, too much, uh, but uh, uh, for India's woes, and uh, you might say a word or two about British colonialism and for the pre-independence uh, period. But basically, I, I think what you said, for example, about health and education and its neglect uh, 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 in Indian uh, uh, throughout the period is uh, uh, very much at the heart of uh, India's problems. One issue, though, I'd like to raise and hear what you have to say about is that you have taken as your unit of analysis India, the Republic of India as a whole. And uh, you make a glancing, the part I've read, a glancing gesture toward Kerala. I happen to have been married to, for 40 years to uh, somebody from Kerala and have spent <laughs> much, much time there, although that's my, not my academic uh, interest. Uh, and it's not utopia, but as the world goes, it's a pretty good place. And uh, uh, there are uh, India is, as, as the cliche goes, as big as Europe and, as and more diverse than Europe. Uh, the project of a uh, united Indian nation, of course, was uh, severed in 1947 with uh, partition. That uh, uh, is an important part of, uh, of the history. But there were other partitions that were proposed. And your book brought to mind a book that I carried with me on the Air India flight to India back in the June 1963, which was uh, uh, called um, India, the Most Dangerous Decades by an American journalist named Selig Harrison. And I haven't thought about that book and I gave it away long ago, but the cover was India Fragmented. And the issue there was, uh, would India break up? Would South India pull away or something like, like that? Um, and you gesture to what Rajani Katari wrote about of the achievement of Nehru, which was holding India together, uh, holding India together, creating some kind of uh, idea of India that uh, has uh, 
for better or worse, uh, sustained uh, the country for, for a long, long time. And uh, uh, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether an independent uh, uh, Kerala Travancore, as it was proposed, uh, uh, would have taken off. And, uh, you know, it's not a, a small country. It's 40, 50 million people. And it's one of the smaller states. Uh, uh, in the, uh, India is full of potentially independent states. I don't think that would have been a good thing, but uh, uh, when one talks about India, one has to think about its variations. Uh, and as you know, Kerala has, a, uh, and I'm not up to date on it, but has a per capita income about the same as Bihar. But the, the difference is distribution and public good that uh, has been achieved there, uh, not without corruption and not without uh, all sorts of political problems. Uh, and one can say that about other locations within India, that there are, uh, there are places that have achieved uh, 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 impressive uh, 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 benefits for its own people in their own terms. So, David, look, you've raised a number of very important issues. Uh, I'm going to, I, I've, I've tried to sort of check them in my head and I'm going to respond to, I hope, everything. On the colonial period, it is true that I do not go into it in any great depth. Uh, what I do say in the book is that for the 50 odd years prior to independence, the Indian economy basically stagnated. Uh, the per capita income grew, if at all, just in a very minutely. Uh, India was a predominantly agricultural country, a poorly educated. Uh, and the British, some colonial historians will tell you, looted the country. What we do know is that they left a legacy which required a tremendous effort. And I am judging or writing my history on the basis of, given that legacy, how well did we do? On Nehru, uh, again, you're 100% correct that Nehru was a much loved man a man of high idealism. And in fact, you know, my father, who passed away at the age of 97 a couple of months ago, was unhappy with my characterization of Nehru just as much as, if not more so than you are expressing. And I, and I kept asking my father, as, as I'm going to ask you, uh, was it not the task of independent India to give primary education to all kids? Was it not the task of independent India to create good health for children, to give them good nutrition? My, my problem with Nehru is that by going into a heavy industrialization policy at the start, he almost from the start for the first 17 years precluded the possibility of creating good jobs. 
because it, it created an economic system in which skilled jobs for a few became the norm from which we have never escaped. So these liabilities that carry on from Nehru's period in terms of the economics, poor job creation, poor uh, delivery of public goods, and as uh, uh, <clears throat> some of you know, the corruption was <clears throat> more uh, at the lower levels, but in 1964, there was a parliamentary committee that reported on the state of corruption in India. And that state of corruption report was very grim reading, uh, which said that there is widespread corruption, including in the judiciary. And so Nehru leaves behind a legacy of a country that has essentially had an unchanged rate of poverty over 17 years, <clears throat> a structure of export production that is virtually unchanged, a increased backlog of jobs, and a sense of social anxiety in society that leads to lead to protests, social protests, which then when Mrs. Gandhi comes, inherits as the legacy, and Mrs. Gandhi, instead of trying to address them, becomes what today we call a populist politician, wherein she makes the preservation of her power against this social protest and opposition the main objective of her 17, 18-year rule. And so we have this continuous legacy where the, the, the difficult and unfortunate start leads to an unprincipled politician who makes use in some sense of that, of that legacy that Nehru leaves to make things even worse. That, that is sort of my assessment. That is why the criticism of Nehru, criticism not as a man, but criticism for what he did. Uh, one last point you made a number of times, you said I have only a passing reference to Kerala. That is correct, that for almost the first half of the book, bo both during the Nehru period and Mrs. Gandhi period, the regional differentiation across India is only very lightly addressed in the book. But in the second half of the book, I have very extensive discussion because by now, the regional differentiations become much more obvious and their dynamics become much more prominent. So uh, I, I, having been myself, you know, having lived in different parts of the country, I'm all too aware of the differences. And so it is very much there in the book as we move along the story. Okay. Nick. Wow. Um, covering a lot of ground. Uh, when my wife and I first came to <clears throat> Kolhapur and Maharashtra, um, we heard so much about Shivaji, so much about Shivaji that we thought he was a local politician. <laughs> we kept looking for him, and we saw a small statue of him in the center of Kolhapur, 
Uh, but we soon, not soon, but uh, well, soon learned that he actually lived in the 1600s. Uh, and he was a, a hero, not only in Maharashtra, but through uh, lots of the rest of India. So there's a, a history of leaders leading the way and carrying people along with them. I'll, I'll put a period at the end of that statement and then say that living in India, ostensibly the men uh, <clears throat> call the shots and uh, they're the ones that are the politicians, the, the warriors, the people that bring it together. I'll come back to that in a second. But as my wife would certainly say, actually, it's the women who call the shots in India. They call the shots in the families uh, across India. And, and then to tie that to Kerala, Kerala has a, a matrilineal uh, operation going on in certain groups of people that are very successful. Mm -hmm. Your epilogue, you talk about the importance of education yeah. and uh, health services, yeah. uh, which would benefit women uh, in a very positive way, and therefore the families in a positive way. And that gets me to my question. Uh, you talk in your epilogue about, in, in essence, uh, one option is to build from the bottom up. Yes. And in India, there's quite a strong um, system of government, it seems to me, that is similar to the uh, system that we have in New England of selectment and town meetings. In India, it seems that at least around Kolhapur, the panchayat system was extremely strong. And my question is, uh, is the panchayat system strong enough and pervasive enough across India that that could be the basis of working from bottom up for reform and women's education, uh, children's education, healthcare, so on and so forth. Self-interest, basically, through the panchayat system. Yes, so when I spoke about local democracy in response to the first uh, comment and question, that's almost exactly what I meant. It may not be exactly the panchayat, it might be sort of groups of panchayats, but as close to the people as possible. Uh, in, in, in India, the term used is decentralized governance, which includes uh, small groups of uh, panchayats sometimes. Uh, that to me is sort of an Indian adaptation of what you're describing in the New England context, the, the type of governance that uh, the political scientist Robert Putnam has talked about. Uh, that's sort of the Indian version of that. The panchayat system is unfortunately very weak. And the only place where it has been successful is in Kerala. Uh, and even in Kerala, the system has managed to move along in a somewhat fragile framework. It is the, st it is the strengthening of that system that, as you quite rightly point out in my epilogue, I refer to as India's best hope. 
So I think in terms of the objective that you lay out, if I understand you right, I have the exact same objective. The, the difficulty is that politicians at the national level and then at the state government level are very reluctant to transmit resources and authority to the lower levels at the panchayat. And so it is, it is that, that limitation that has held things back, even though, in principle, India has been committed to that kind of uh, governance for a very long time. Uh, on Nehru, you know, I, I mentioned in passing uh, my relationship with my father. And I regret to this day that I was not able to give him a bit, uh, an answer that satisfied him. Uh, and I see some of that in the commentary today. Uh, Nehru was a very beloved man. There's no question about it. Nehru was a good man. There's no question about it. But Nehru, I'm going to say this as bluntly as I can without any, uh, without any ill intention. He was an elitist. He was a, a top-down guy. Uh, and uh, the, the result was what you describe. It wasn't that he was trying to imitate the West. What he was trying to do was his notion of a scientific modernization of India. And in, in his vision, India had, through this long period of colonial rule, missed out on advances in science and technology. And that it now India was independent, this was a moment of great hope, and that if India could harness that science and technology for long-term development, India could very quickly move on to bigger and greater things. What he missed, unfortunately, was despite his knowledge of history and him being a, a, you know, a very important 20th century historian in his own right, he missed the fact that primary education is the bedrock of all development. Whatever, whatever, in the last 350 years, since the Industrial Revolution, there have been two essential correlates of economic development, mass education and bringing more women into the workforce. There is no exception to this rule. There is no, people, economists debate about the causality. Does education cause growth? Do, does more women participation cause growth? I don't know what the causality is, but I know that there is an irrefutable association. Whether you look at the United States, whether you look at Japan, the most proximate example in Nehru's time was Japan, which had undergone a massive primary education revolution in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And it is, it is that neglect which was also highlighted to him by uh, Rabindranath Tagore, a name very likely familiar to this audience. Uh, so it's not that he did not know, but he had no concept of getting his hands dirty. Uh, 
you had a second point which I wanted to comment on towards the end. What was your last last question? The last question was oh on... yeah on on Indian Indian cultural origins. Okay, yeah, right. So uh, look on the cultural origins, there was uh, one element that kept recurring through the process of writing this book, and that was the Indian caste caste system. And for many Indian historians, that is the central element of post-independence history. And I recognize that the caste system and the hierarchies and divisions it creates is an abhorrent system. But I have concluded that the India was subject to larger moral failures larger moral failures in the sense that the erosion of norms and accountability led then to a, a loss in the loss of trust and cooperation in society and elements of that included relatively widespread corruption from the beginning which then gathered force and then by towards the end of Mrs. Gandhi's period, by the early 80s, we also have a class of criminally charged politicians coming into, into politics. Uh, so that, you know, one statistic that you will see if you look at my book is that in the 2019 national election for the Lok Sabha, which is the national parliament, 29% of the elected legislators, parliamentarians, carry charges of serious crimes such as rape, murder, extortion, kidnapping. Uh, when, when people talk about India as a democracy, I understand what they mean, that we do have elections. They seem to be well conducted. If there is rigging, uh, it's not obvious that it's extensive, but there are the innards of the demo democratic process are being eroded by, for many reasons, one of which is the widespread prevalence of uh, criminally charged politicians. Mm. So the, the it's, it's those broader features that I feel are much more central in explaining why public policy has never really tried to deal with the needs of a larger mass of people. And why therefore I say in my subtitle of my book, this is a democracy that has betrayed its people. This, that phrase comes from James Madison, uh, he's, he, who says that, it, a democracy is intended to reflect the priorities of people through the political parties who <laughs> represent them. And my conclusion is that the political parties, once elected in power, uh, cease to represent the people, or at least their interests. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been thank really you very great. Much. Thank you very much, Ken. Thank you all. Thank you all very much for such a lively discussion. That was Professor Ashoka Modi, 
His new book is titled, India is Broken, A People Betrayed Independence to Today. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcast. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. 